This program features interviews with respected healthcare industry experts on current topics of substantial national importance. Your host for the program is David Intricasso, a DC-based healthcare policy analyst and researcher. We invite you to comment on the program by visiting thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Now, here's David. Welcome to the Healthcare Policy Podcast. I'm the host, David Intricasso. During this podcast, we'll discuss value-based insurance design, or VBID, with Dr. Mark Fendrick, who's the director of the VBID Center at the University of Michigan. Mark, or Dr. Fendrick, welcome to the program. Happy to be here. Dr. Fendrick's bio is, of course, posted on the podcast website. On background, this is a de facto sequel to my May 11th discussion with Professor Andrew Ryan, also at the University of Michigan, concerning measuring for value or spending efficiency. Paying for value or reducing or eliminating patient out-of-pocket costs is based on the straightforward notion that out-of-pocket costs should not be uniform for all services and medications, particularly when non-adherence rises along with rising health care costs. That is, we need to solve the increasing problem of under-consuming high-value care. The idea was recognized in the 2010 Affordable Care Act, specifically Section 2713, that is, patient cost-sharing for specific preventive care services were eliminated. For example, out-of-pocket costs for significantly underutilized breast and colorectal screenings. The value-based idea was furthered by the ACA-created Innovation Center in 2017 with the launch of the Innovation Center's now eight-year MA, excuse me, Medicare Advantage, VBID demonstration. Initially designed for MA plans in seven states, the, next, uh, the demo next year will be offered in all 50. This year, participating MA plans can lower out-of-pocket beneficiary costs with for certain chronic conditions. Beginning next year, the VBID demo will be substantially expanded. And in 2021, MA plans will be able to offer hospice benefits under the demonstration, a benefit that remains carved out of the Medicare Advantage program. With me again to discuss VBID is University of Michigan's Dr. Mark Fendrick. So with that, um, uh, by way of background, uh, Mark, let me begin by asking you if you can provide a brief overview of your center, launched, I believe, in 2005. Thank you, David. The, uh, the VBID story actually goes back uh, to the late last century, where Michael Chernew, now at Harvard Medical School, then at University of Michigan and I, had this conversation over the fact that one of my patients, I'm a practicing general internist, told me he had really good insurance, but at the same time, even though he had a mother and sister with colorectal cancer, couldn't afford his colorectal cancer screening. Uh, Mike had done some work, uh, theoretical work, on what he called optimal health insurance, to which I said to him over a $5 bibimbap, wouldn't it be a great idea that health insurance actually covered generously the things that help my patients most as opposed to covering the services that cost the least? And it was at that conversation uh, originally called the benefit-based copay, but ultimately value-based insurance design was born. It was very lucky for us in, in, uh, in the early 2000s when healthcare reform was largely driven by uh, the private sector we had a fair number of large employers who realized that it probably wasn't a good idea to charge their employees a lot of money to treat their diabetes, their asthma, their mental health disorders, and other types of things. 
and they ultimately started implementing value-based insurance designs in the employer sector. And, and Pitney Bowes is one of your early examples, correct? Right. Pitney Bowes, uh, Marriott Corporation, the municipality of Asheville, North Carolina, uh, Eastman Chemical, and, and it was pretty easy for me uh, to go in to talk to large corporations and say, do you think it's a good idea to have your patients with diabetes have to pay a lot to get their eyes examined or to have your kids with asthma who've been to the ER a few times pay a lot to get their asthma inhalers? And gradually, it became uh, somewhat intuitive and ultimately, we brought this idea to the U.S. Congress in 2006, trying to convince the large public payers, the VA, the TRICARE program, and ultimately the holy grail for us, the Medicare program, to think about this idea of having clinically driven or nuanced designs. And it was right about that time where we were really surprised to see uh, the number of stakeholders who were interested in supporting our work and as you say, in the mid-2000s, around 2005 precisely, the University of Michigan Center for Value-Based Insurance Design was established. Okay, thank you. Um, let's go to, since I mentioned uh, CMMI, the Innovation Center, uh, created again under the ACA. They um, are running and has, as I noted, since 17, a CMMI Medicare Advantage VBID demo. Uh, it's been increasingly expanded. These demos usually run five, and under the BBA of 18, it's been extended through 2024 for eight years total. What's your assessment to date of uh, performance uh, that these participating plans has achieved? Um, I ask in part because there's been some uh, concern about uh, the extent to which MA plans are participating, although I will say it's interesting, there is increasingly a relationship between the demo and the MA program since CMS has been expanding the MA program uh, to basically do the same things the VBID demo is, which is to expand, ex extend supplemental benefits for discrete populations, meaning they don't have to be offered to all enrollees in an MA plan. So, David, I hope you don't mind. Uh, I was introduced to the U.S. Congress as the tortoise in the healthcare reform race. And I'm going to just take you back Please. a little before the establishment of the CMMI demo to tell you why we felt that was so important. So when we went to um, Congress to advocate for clinically nuanced VBID plans, uh, we were speaking about it in every sector, public and private. And as you mentioned, uh, the by far the most important accomplishment of value-based insurance design was its inclusion in the ACA Section 2713 uh, that removed cost-sharing for many high-value preventive services and commercial non-grandfathered plans, and the spirit of 2713 was extended into many aspects of the Medicare program. But as you well know and your listeners well know, that some of the most highest-value clinical services and a great majority of our healthcare spending in the U.S. is not on prevention, which makes up between 2 to 3% of spend, but on chronic diseases, which is 86% of spend in commercial and 98% of spend in Medicare. So I was particularly concerned over the fact of having someone get a low-cost or free mammogram, for instance, and not being able to afford the breast biopsy, the surgery, or the chemotherapy. We had, from the day that the ACA VBID policy was put in place, we wrote then Secretary Sebelius a letter saying, it's great that we're doing preventive care, but chronic disease care needs to be added 
to our list. And uh, I knew the founding director of the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation, uh, Rick Hilfelin, and, and basically said, we've got to figure out ways to add chronic disease services to the zero cost sharing list in Medicare, such as eye exams for diabetics, which everyone knows is on every quality measure list since quality measure lists have been created. And uh, what I did not know at that time, which is very important, I think, and many of your listeners know, is when Medicare was put in place in 1965, it included something called the uniformity rule, mm-hmm. meaning that every Medicare beneficiary had to have the same benefit design regardless of their clinical scenario, which frustratingly for me is 100% contrary to value-based insurance design, which is this precision or clinically nuanced type of design where someone with one condition would get a different level of cost sharing than another. So I was told to do VBIT in Medicare, it would take an act of Congress, which typically means get back on the plane to to Michigan. But instead, with tenure and some funding, I said, I'm going to try to do this and started advocating for VBIT and Medicare and actually had a number of bills introduced both in the House and Senate with bipartisan support to say we should try value-based insurance design in the Medicare program and specific chronic diseases for specific services. And thankfully, uh, when the bill passed the House of Representatives, this was very kind of tumultuous partisan times for health care unanimously in the House when the Republicans controlled this. Patrick Conway, uh, then director of CMMI, said, this sounds like a good idea. We have bipartisan support, and CMMI launched the demo. And this was the very first, David, waiving of the uniformity rule in that Medicare beneficiaries with one condition could get different levels of cost sharing for services and provider visits than others. So for the first time, in an MAVBID demo plan, say for diabetes, the, those with diabetes can get eye exams at low or no cost, but patients who didn't have diabetes still had to pay a cost share. The fascinating thing about the MAVBID demo is, unlike most things in Washington, the politics ran faster than the policy, as you point out. Republicans and Democrats love the VBID demo. They uh, included in the Chronic Act to expand the value-based insurance design from, at that time, 25 states to 50, Mm -hmm. even though we knew very little about, A, the uptake, but, B, more importantly to kind of folks like us, whether this was actually helping Medicare patients, which is the ultimate motivation. What we have now is just very little information from the first year about what the programs are like and things that, you know, folks like your listeners know more than I, the administrative concerns and other type of issues with all the things on an MA plan's plate, do they want to put in an application for a brand new benefit design just for a very small cohort of patients with chronic diseases? So the early uptake uh, was, as you say, maybe suboptimal. There were lots of reasons. There's a recent paper in the American Journal of Managed Care that describes some of those things. But in my opinion, most of the CMMI demos are held to a cost neutrality of financial outcome meaning that you can't put demos in place unless they pay for themselves. And while improving patient outcomes is my motivation and why I went to medical school, most of the things that improve quality are not cost-neutral and certainly not cost-saving. So to give you a very long answer to your short question, why in the earliest stages, why more plans didn't buy in, I think one was inertia, 
uh, due to the ACA. And two, I think plans were somewhat concerns over the fact that even if they did improve quality in the short term, it would probably cost money as opposed to saving money. I, with VBID 2.0, which was what uh, Administrator Verma and Secretary Azar referred to these new expansions of the VBID program, uh, they have been much more flexible in terms of what you could provide uh, in the VBID MA demo. And in addition to hospice, they've added telemedicine. They've mm-hmm. added potential uh, for food and transportation, which is very exciting to me, who's interested in socioeconomic determinants of health that are non-medical. And uh, I, I'm very optimistic now that it's a nationwide demo and there's been a little more clarity about the cost neutrality requirement that more plans will come on board understanding that cost-related non-adherence is not just an issue in the exchanges and in commercial insurance. It is a big problem in the Medicare program. Mm-hmm. Thank you. I will say relative to the evolution of this um, uh, MAVBID demo, that in this year, um, uh, the plans can choose to provide um, their beneficiaries reduced cost sharing or provide additional supplemental benefits, uh, including those ideas non-primarily health-related, based on disease condition, per your point, socioeconomic status, or both. And then beyond telehealth, there is an opportunity for the plans to expand what are rewards and incentive RI program benefits including a Part D benefit. So um, the menu here has grown. Uh, the pages in the menu have multiplied uh, since this thing, this demo was originally, again, um, fielded in, in 2017. Let me go to um, what uh, came out recently from your center. Uh, and this, I think, will help explain further uh, the concept of what uh, this idea is trying to uh, accomplish or this effort, and this is your VBIDX proposal. Uh, this was in a white paper, and I'll put a link to it uh, on the podcast page. Uh, VBIDX, Creating a Value-Based Insurance Design Plan for the Exchange Market. This was dated last month, and then just this past Monday in the uh, Health Affairs blog, you and your colleagues, I think Mike is also Chern, who is a co-author here, uh, published an overview of this VBIDX. Um, so let's go to it. Um, sure. You say, so we're uh, very... let me just say, uh, that, uh, you, you state that this attempts to abandon blunt, another way of phrasing all this, abandon, I love this, abandon blunt cost sharing strategies by skewing patient cost sharings towards the services typically uh, overused. So I'll leave it at that. If you can uh, address this, however. Yeah, we're very excited and also somewhat nervous about the launch of VBIDX. Um, Professor Cherno has begged me for two decades to stop talking about VBIT and actually design a prototype plan. So, David, people frequently ask me, uh, with the intuitiveness of value-based insurance design, getting away from one-size-fits-all cost-sharing to low-cost-sharing for good things and high-cost-sharing for bad things, you know, what ultimately has slowed the uptake of value-based insurance design. And I think uh, the number one reason is that VBID carrot programs or VBID programs at lower cost sharing, such as those that have to be in the MA demo, they tend to increase spending in the short term Mm -hmm. because more people buy the stuff. You know, my mother said, I can't believe you had to spend a million dollars to show that if you make people pay more for something, they'll buy less of it. 
Um, we now also know from VBID studies, if you make people pay less for something, they buy more, more of it. Of it and right. mo most of the high-value services that I beg my patients to do are cost-effective and not cost-saving. And, and thankfully, your listeners are one of the few Americans who understand that if you increase the use of things that cost money, you're not going to save money. So uh, the VBIT Center board had been begging for years for the creation of a cost-neutral VBIT plan. And as we, the cost would go up slightly from the VBIT carrots, the traditional approach to paying for those increases would either be blunt instruments like making everyone pay a small amount in higher premiums or more commonly make the sick pay more in higher deductibles, which is really the motivation for value-based insurance design that I love deductibles for care we shouldn't buy, and I despise deductibles for things that I beg my patients to do. So the only way to create a cost-neutral VBID plan is to identify and measure and reduce the use of no and low-value care. And as much as I want to be a high-value care guy to make the math right and the finances right, I also had to become a person who targeted low-value care, understanding that no service is ever high or low-value. Uh, the whole idea of clinical nuance, there are some services that are mostly high-value, uh, I call them fruit below the ground, as there are services that are usually done in a low-value care setting. And I thank goodness for the creation of the Choosing Wisely initiative that most of your readers know about, which is groups of clinicians identifying those services that are overused. So why VBIDX is uh, so exciting to us, and as many of your listeners know, that on the exchanges there's no flexibility in actuarial value, premiums, or deductibles and that if we wanted to expand coverage or make coverage more generous for the high-value services that the VBIT Center and Mike Chernu have been arguing for for decades, we also had to identify specific services or services categories and raise cost-sharing on those to be able to pay for dollar for dollar for the incremental spend on the high-value services. And the VBITX prototype that you mentioned, which is just one example of a plan that can achieve more generous coverage of about 20 high-value services paid for by less generous coverage for 15 or so service categories is a very important step forward in the fact that we had an independent actuary mm -hmm. work with our VBIDX proposal team saying, oh, you want to cover more insulin? That's going to cost you money. You better pay, you know, hopefully that you get fewer spinal fusions or funer funeral fewer MRIs and CT scans, or, you know, my favorite, fewer population-based vitamin D tests to be able to pay for that. So because we had no wiggle room on AV and the exchanges, we now have a silver plan that is a, hopefully a good example to not only the folks in the state exchanges and the federal exchanges, but also in the commercial marketplaces to understand that you can do VBID. It is feasible to create a plan that ties to my tagline is, you know, buy more of the good stuff and less of the bad stuff because, as you know, David, everyone agrees there's enough money in the U.S. healthcare system. We just spend it in the wrong places. And hopefully if we tie VBIDX to some of the really excited alternative payment models that you've discussed on the podcast, we'd be able to allow this shift of resources to things that produce health more frequently and things that don't produce health and sometimes cause harm far less frequently. Great, thank you. So, um, so you, you work through the math on this again in your in your June white paper, and you do get into the 
the AV, as you say, the actuarial values. So you get, so you do the math on this to make sure uh, it sums out correctly. Um, my question, my most immediate question when I was reading the white paper is, are you offering it, or thinking about offering this, and this is the weedy question, to the uh, PTAC, which of course is the Physician-Focused Payment Model Technical Advisory Commission, for their review and recommendation? So that's a really good question. We could use your help and certainly your listeners in terms of how we move uh, VBITX forward. So we're very fortunate to have on the VBITX team, we had representatives from the Massachusetts Connector, Covered California, and the Federal Exchange, and, and uh, which will be discussed on our July 24th webinar at 1 p.m., which is free. We will have representatives from those organizations actually asking, uh, having me ask them explicitly that question. We can only go so far to create a plan that we believe is cost neutral, that will uh, provide better coverage for quality metrics and hopefully uh, decrease this excess spending and potential harm on low-value care. When Mike Cherno and I started on VBITX, we were really hopeful that uh, either state exchanges or more private payers would step up and create VBIT plans, and uh, it is our hope that the more exposure we get to the guarantee of actuarial value neutrality, that uh, these plans will be more attractive than the ones that actually led to slight increase in total spend. Thank you. My my other thought in reading this was, since, since states are fielding uh, through uh, their Medicaid uh, programs uh, de facto uh, accountable care organizations or ACO models, and then of course there's the uh, Medicaid Shared Savings Program, the Medicare ACO uh, program, have you thought about how this can be included or used as a variation yeah, under ACO care? Of course. So I'm smiling because I know you've probably talked to Professor Chernu, who's an expert on... <laughs> I saw him last week, actually. <laughs> ...all of these alternative payment models. I am known in Washington and other circles, uh, David, as the peanut butter and jelly guy for this reason. I call the more sophisticated levers of healthcare transformation in the U.S. These are the supply side or provider-facing initiatives that you mentioned as peanut butter. Mm-hmm. I have focused much of my work on the demand side or my patient-facing levers, which I call jelly. Mm-hmm. And I've tried very hard. It's uh, remarkable to me to see the, the services, for instance, that are designated as quality metrics in an ACO, for example, an eye exam for a patient with diabetes mellitus. Mm-hmm. Those, those services should covered, be covered generously, thus the peanut butter and jelly analogy, you know, the sum better than either one of the parts, as opposed to the growth of high deductibles, which discourages the use of all services that are not covered under 2713. So I've gone to patient medical home settings, ACO settings, any payer that's willing to listen to me and tell them this very simple point. You've identified your quality metrics, which you're encouraging your providers to do, increasingly now in a shared savings environment, Take a look at the benefit design, and please don't embarrass me by making it hard for my patients to get the services that you're encouraging me to do more of. The coverage for a diabetic eye exam in the United States of America in 2019, this has been my flagship high-value service for 20 years, is actually worse now than it was when I started because of the growth of high deductibles. And that's why one of our most 
interesting and successful policy achievements is trying to change uh, the way deductibles are used in this country, which are the ultimate blunt instrument. Mm -hmm. You know, I was, I did have a question initially uh, on my list uh, regarding your view on, speaking of high deductibles, um, you know, the president's or the administration's solution, which it rolled out formally last year, were AHPs, so-called association health plans, oftentimes just generically termed high deductible plans, which I'm I thought I'd take that question off since I think I could have interpreted or, or, or guessed your answer, and I think you just obviously gave it there. Um, well, there's a much more important policy thing that I'd like to chime in if you'd allow please. me. So um, the most attractive type of high deductible health plan, as your listeners know, are these that are paired to a IRS qualified health saving account HSAs. or an HSA, HDHP. So I love HSAs because of the triple tax advantage. I hate the fact that the wisdom of Congress has tied them to the plans that I really find to be most problematic, particularly for the patients I worry about the most, those with uh, limited socioeconomics and financial stability and those with multiple chronic conditions because a deductible is basically a tax on the sick. You know, mm-hmm. A healthy guy like you doesn't have to worry, but someone who you know going in with three chronic diseases is problematic. And this is particularly worrisome to me, given that in employer-sponsored plans, the now average deductible is greater than $1,500. This is just for an individual. And, and the Federal Reserve said last year that less than four, 40% of Americans have $400 in the bank. Right, right. right. So this is, this is really the rub for me. And that, you know, I like to say, as I've said earlier, I like high deductibles on things that we shouldn't be buying. I want no deductibles on the services that I beg my patients to do. The rub here, though, David, is that when HSA, HDHPs were created in 2004 under the Medicare Modernization Act, uh, the IRS created what was called a pre-deductible safe harbor. And in those things are the services that are now mandated to be covered first dollar, not just pre-deductible, under the ACA. However, to to keep a fence around that harbor, the IRS also established in Section 223C2C, the only section I ever know the number for, that HSA, HGHPs, until yesterday, could not cover any service that was designated to treat an existing illness, injury, or condition. This means insulin could not be covered on a pre-deductible basis, and this is why we are hearing so much about the terrible situations of -of out-of-pocket costs for insulin visits, diagnostic tests, and drugs that treat many of the prevalent chronic diseases. So for 14 years, I had been working to amend Section 223C2C to allow HSA, HHPs the flexibility, not mandate, but the flexibility if they want to cover chronic disease preventive services on a pre-deductible basis. And what's really interesting, and I think your readers will appreciate this, is that I have looked for my entire three-decade career to find a policy that will help patients and will save the federal government money. And because Steve Parente, now at the Council of Economic Advisors, modeled that if we were to create something called HGHP+, or a high-deductible health plan that would cover these high-value services that we've designated in places like VBIT-X or the Medicare Advantage demos, that people would move into these plans by the millions, but they would not only buy up from skinny high-deductible health plans, which is a cost, they would buy down substantially 
from plans that are looking to spend less on their health plans. Large employers want a plan that is in the middle between the Cadillac-type PPO mm-hmm. and the Pinto-like high-deductible plan. And just yesterday, while your timing is so good, July 17, um, Secretary, Secretary Mnuchin uh, signed a guidance that allows for the first time HSA, HGHPs, to cover 14 selected high-value services categories on a pre-deductible basis. So now these high-deductible health plans can say insulin is covered either with a copay or coinsurance, but you don't have to pay the full retail price from January to when your deductible is met. This has been supported not only by Republicans and Democrats in the House and Senate. This is a policy that is supported by the pharmaceutical large lobbying pharma and America's health insurance plans that tend not to agree on too many policies. Uh, the Smarter Healthcare Coalition has brought together a really interesting, strange bedfellow group of organizations who've strongly supported this amendment to the IRS rule. And it's our hope that even though we have a select number of services under this initial guidance, that the Chronic Disease Management Act of 2019, which is recently introduced in the House and Senate in a bipartisan way, will expand that list even further. Okay, thank you. We're, um, we're at about our time. I do want to cover, however, briefly uh, opportunities at the state level. So I'll just ask most uh, generally, are there, and I know through reading through your center's materials, you identify several states, Connecticut, your own state, New Jersey, New Mexico, Oregon, Virginia, um, as uh, states implementing VBID, but how would you characterize uh, uh, state progress? So the states have really been the tip of the spear on VBID, and I'll say briefly. So uh, the Connecticut Health Enhancement Plan is really my favorite VBID carrot program to talk about. That means they identified services that were underused and made them less expensive. What was interesting about this plan called HEP is they had a participation requirement, which the collectively bargaining agreement was worried about, but p- meaning that people needed to show that they got their preventive services or if you had a chronic disease like diabetes that you got your eyes examined. This has been a huge success and uh, people like the, obviously the increased access to high value services a great deal and don't seem to mind at this point that they have to show some attribution or accountability for doing that. At the other end of that, but really sharp spear is the Commonwealth of Virginia and they have taken the lead on the identification measurement and reduction of low-value care. Uh, We have published a number of papers showing that in the Virginia All-Payer Claims Database that there's really billions of, uh, I'm sorry, hundreds of millions of dollars that can be saved by removing low-ticket items like vitamin D testing, pre-op testing before low-risk surgery, and imaging for back pain. And uh, we're happy to be part of a team uh, funded by Arnold Ventures that will actually not just measure the low-value care, but bring together employers and providers, uh, six of the very largest health systems in the Commonwealth, to tackle the problem of low-value care that will hopefully create headroom, David, to allow us to buy more of the good stuff. Okay. Uh, Appreciate uh, those two uh, state mentions particularly. So with that said, uh, Mark, we're at about our, our time limit here. I do 
uh, appreciate this whirlwind uh, essential uh, overview of an important approach to uh, insurance redesign. I, I wish you uh, continued progress and success uh, with this effort, and maybe down the road we can revisit uh, how this has evolved further. But with that, uh, thank you again, Mark. Thank you for having me. Slow and steady progress. Yes, it is. Thanks again. Take care. Right up. You have just heard another edition of the Healthcare Policy Podcast hosted by David Intricasso. To comment on this program or others, to see information about upcoming interviews, to suggest a program topic, or to hear an archive program, please visit our website, thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Thank you for listening, and please listen again soon.